Hello and welcome to the 333rd episode of the Crate and Crowbar, a podcast about PC gaming. It is Wednesday, the 22nd of July, 2020. I am Alex Wilshire and tonight I am joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Graham Smith. Hello. I didn't realise we were half a Satan. We are. We're <laughs> curious. <laughs> I know that was amazing. I thought that was a that's a good number. There's a lot of numbers. There's been a lot of pods. <laughs> there has been a lot of pods. Do you think there's been enough pods? Never. The takes must flow. <laughs> and the news. We haven't got much to talk about this week. But I was I was really interested in um, a story I saw about um, someone who has created uh, some sort of test platform, which can um, take seeds for say the spire runs um and it crunches through them to see whether they are impossible as in like there is no way to win them and um his finding so far is that he hasn't found any impossible seeds which seems incredible to me as someone who has serially is a hundred percent failure rate uh in say the spire despite um tens of hours of playing because i'm bad um uh, I have always failed, and yet uh, this is telling me that it's all my fault, which is a bit upsetting. See, I find it so comforting that you just said you were bad at that game, because normally the only people I hear talk about it is, like, Tom F. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems to be, like, savant-like, talking about <laughs> things I've never encountered. I played that game for 30 hours. I also <laughs> never beat the Spire. <laughs> I've 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 have I've got better as in like I've I went through um a series of playing it before Monster Train came out which then sort of took over my kind of fascination for it uh for these kind of games um a couple of months ago or a month ago so uh yeah I I was getting better in that kind of chunk of playing and I was getting to the end boss but I was never seeing any way of getting through the end boss like I was just like a brick wall and then I'd go through like a, a succession of total, total failures that would sort of, I was just think, what? I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying losing, but, <laughs> but, but surely there's no way to win this stupid game. <laughs> Have you beaten the Spire, Tom? Yeah, I've beaten it with every class, um, but then I bought it, <laughs> bought it on Switch and I've got to beat it on every class on Switch. Then I'll definitely buy it on iPad or something. You know, I'll just get it and just keep rebuying that game and beating it over and over again. <laughs> So good. So, but apparently, this um, this project, uh, which is um, was kicked off by um, uh, someone called Forgotten Arbiter, um, it was kicked off by um, a discussion involving the silence of inability to defeat elite enemy Lagavulin um, on Ascension Twenty with a basic deck. Blimey. So, Ascension Twenty would be um, very difficult run. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Lagavulin is the first area's boss, or the first kind of first boss, isn't it, that the silent faces? That's right, isn't it? Lagavulin sounds like a type of whiskey. It is. I actually did. I did Google it, and yes, it is. All the all the entries are for whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that what's the what? Do you know what the tricky thing is with with that particular boss, Tom? I can't remember it. What does it look like? They all look so strange. <laughs> it's the it's the kind of um uh, uh it's the one that's asleep for a long time um for at the start. So like you have to wake it up, and then I think you have got three turns where you get free damage on it. But it puts mm. a puts a 
um, a, a block on, and then yeah. it goes crazy and then starts hitting quite heavily. So is, it, uh, is that the one where it's sort of, if you hit it enough in the short amount of time, it goes back to sleep, but sort of also grows thorns. So when you start attacking it again, it hurts you. No, that's the spiky one. What mm. uh, that the oh maybe you're right actually. Uh, we should know this. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the exact problem is, but that's what um, that's what what um, inspired this project, which I thought quite quite nice. <laughs> like, and presumably it's answered the question. The silent definitely can beat that enemy with, uh, <laughs> with, um, on Ascension Twenty. But um, yeah, like, and it has also tested out some of the more difficult seeds he discovered. And yeah, uh, but hardcore players, yeah, is it? Yeah, I'm I'm always fascinated by the fact that. That these games are about constant choices, but there is just so many of them that you get this kind of incredible dynamic range between uh, Graham and me and hmm. the good people. <laughs> the Toms. The Toms. All the Toms. I don't you've, think I could take Tom Francis. <laughs> you, you've spoken to the developers of Slay the Spire, Alex. Did you have any sense that they had a tool like that for testing their own game? Because it's not uncommon for, for game developers, especially if you know procedural games, to create a script that auto-plays their own game to make sure that there are no dead ends or whatever else. Yeah, that's a good question. I did. Um, I have asked sort of similar ones. Like, there's this, there's this really bad question that you can ask um, game developers, which I am guilty of doing many, many times. Which is basically, cool, could, like, your game is really complex. Um, so uh, how do you balance it? And you can just <laughs> feel eyes kind of swiveling in their eye sockets because, like, the answer is iteration. <laughs> And I can't remember what their specific um, response was, but I'm pretty sure it was along the lines of, hey, we just do a lot of testing. We play the game a lot. And I think also um, it's been such an um, incremental kind of a game that mm. I'm, I don't, I mean, it might be there at all now, but I think when I talked to them a couple of years back, it was like, you know, the it was a case that sort of the game had so incrementally, they had such an awareness of what, the game, how the game worked, and had it been played so much that that they, you know, they didn't need such a tool. But I do wonder, like, surely there's just a thing that just generates spreadsheets, <laughs> and you just choose for the, the the numbers for all the cards that sit in the spreadsheet with the least least bad numbers. <laughs> I remember talking to Creative Assembly about. Um testing faction balance in total war games and they've basically built ais that they just run all day oh, every wow. day they just churn <laughs> out uh, outcomes and so they'll get like presented with the map and who's beaten who and if you you start seeing a consistent winner over that it's, so it suggests that they're a bit too powerful perhaps but they, they get loads and loads of data out of that just by automating um ai versus ai campaigns oh that's so good yeah it's rad there's, um, I went to visit um, um, Hello Games a few months ago, and, um, and this is actually an old tool, but it's the first time I'd really seen it going um, uh, on the kind of like the, the in the office floor. There's a pillar, and on it is a as a TV, and on the TV it, the view is um, divided into a grid of I don't know twelve. 12 screens, all just scroll like flying through um, No Man's Sky um, planets constantly um each of them on a different planet and that is a tool which is um testing for 
weird or messed up generation problems. Um, and it's just constantly visiting, you know, and it's, a, it's also a, um, a stability checker. So that just the, you just run it and run it, and run it. And there's, there's stats for how long the, this bot has been going for without stop. And one of them, you know, sort of like 53 hours of constant traveling through the universe and kind of capturing video of, 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 of its ventures through all these worlds that presumably no other people have actually visited. Well, that's how Andy Kelly plays games. <laughs> <laughs> you could just hire him to be, be that role. Also, they, they should put something like that in an art museum. It would just be beautiful to watch all these planes on their own adventures go through space yeah i know it's good because you kind of you see the range of stuff that they you know that it generates you know sort of because you know it's a very colorful game and those those 12 you know that grid of, of um of feeds from the game uh they're all different colors and it's like yeah it's really pretty um is there any other news what have you what have you been writing about anything fun tom um, I've been writing about uh, Total War Troy, which I played last week, oh. um, which is, of course, set, you know, in ancient Greece during the events of uh, the Iliad, and um... during the events of the two thousand and four <laughs> <laughs> Brad Pitt movie. <laughs> the, oh, Legolas was there too. It's like a weird fever dream that film. Um, uh, yeah, so. Um, They've taken an interesting approach to history because, like, history at the time is reported through great grand poetry and great volumes of, uh, you know, uh, Homer's Iliad, of course, um, where it's like, can't take anything of those things literally as, like, um, you can't take, you know, stories of mystical creatures literally. So what they've done is they've sort of, like, tried to map those mythical concepts onto human equivalents, like, oh, here's a type of unit that might have become known as the Minotaurs over the course of hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and they're just like big buff dudes with hairy chests, <laughs> um, which kind of undersells the, the mythology a little bit. But I think they, they're sort of like uh, the Total War series is stuck in an interesting way, especially the historical games, um, because like since Total War Warhammer, which let them just make these crazy units of these like, wild heroes, um, they sort of tried to keep injecting some of that excitement into the historical games. But the sort of people who often play these historical games actually far more interested in accuracy or something that's actually quite believable. Yeah. Um, so in uh, Three Kingdoms, uh, they had two different game modes where one was this totally fantastic one where the heroes were almost immortal. They could take, take down entire units by themselves. And then they had like a separate mode, which was like slightly more realistic. Um, and that was kind of, that sounds like a lot of work <laughs> to make two versions of the game for two imagined audiences. That's okay. They get the right AI to do it for it. For <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, but in this one, they've, they've sort of like merged it and tried to go to an awkward middle path where like, I would have been fine for there to be Minotaurs on the battlefield. So I'm quite happy for, for that fantasy stuff to take take the four in, in the right mythological context. But um, they've, I think they do have an audience they need to please with the, the historical games that I'm not sure this will really make anyone happy because it's kind of set in fundamentally a fictional world mm. you know like we only know it through the story so therefore you'd think they could have quite a lot of latitude with just putting crazy monsters in it yeah so like take the medusa um the medusa is a type of agent you can recruit in total war saga troy um and if you get her you can send her on one mission and she's uh, she's just a woman with like dead snakes tied into her hair, like she's just a normal person. Um, but she uh, she uh, goes up into uh, enemy garrisons and 
embeds itself in enemy armies and basically just scares the crap out of them until loads of them run away and you basically like reduce the garrison just by sending her as a kind of like i know morale bomb <laughs> goes off and takes them all out um and I, I don't know that has so little to do with the medusa <laughs> myth that i don't quite i don't find it very satisfying um yeah i, I wonder how it will be received as well and also like after how Three Kingdoms was so lavish and beautiful and the way they kind of really kind of dug into the mythology of those heroes. Um, this feels like a kind of less imaginative approach that I feel slightly more boring, but then I'm a, I'm a particular type of Total War fan and I imagine lots of people would disagree. It's interesting because it's like Creative Assembly have always followed this kind of TikTok development rhythm with Total War games where they do one which is massive and expansive and moves the series forward and then they do one after it which is more constrained and smaller. They've always worked that way but they've mm. and sometimes like the the more constrained focused ones were the with the better games because of that focus. So you know they would do the big expansive Empire Total War and it would be a fucking mess because it's so <laughs> buggy and the AI wouldn't work in in half a dozen different ways. Hmm. And then they would do a much more focused thing that would be polished and would work really well. Same. But now that they've rebranded those those games as because this isn't just a Total War game, it's a Total War saga game. Yeah. Now it just feels like they've branded it in such a way that my brain instantly goes. Oh, I can skip that one because mm. uh, that's just like the, the weird spin-off series. Like even like you know Shogun Two, which I liked, but everyone said the Fall of the Samurai expansion was better mm. and more focused on like a single guy, and they rebranded that after the fact as as a Total War Saga game. But still, in my brain, I'm like, oh, it's one of the Saga ones. Those are those those don't matter as much. Just ignore those. And the other weird thing with it is that. They've, they've signed an epic exclusivity where I think it's going to be free for the first, is it the first 24 hours? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. you could just download a Total War game for free. That seems like an amazing thing. Um, but, like, we did, uh, on, on the Rock Paper Shotgun YouTube channel, we did a video about a Total War Troy yesterday, and it's just got all of these comments on it from people saying that they think it's going to be shit because Creative Assembly don't need to make it good now because Epic have given them lots of money. Oh. <laughs> like they're, just really, <laughs> they're just really cross. Not only that it's going to be exclusive to the Epic Game Store, but just the fact that it's being given away for free seems to annoy them. That so, makes them so that's incredible good. logic, isn't it? <laughs> the sort of logical backflips you have to do to sort of make that work is impressive. I think, uh, so the saga, yeah, I think you're right. The saga does have like, uh, as a label, I think is a little bit tainted because the last one was Britannia, which wasn't amazing. Um, but Fall of the Samurai, which I reviewed, is bloody brilliant. It's really, really good. And I liked the Shogun 2 as well. So, um, yeah, it feels weird to lump all those games together, uh, especially when, you, like, Three Kingdoms was one of the most focused sort of what they were called tentpole Total War games they've done in years. Um, yeah. I know what you mean. feels like a Champions League, doesn't it? Compared to the Premiership, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I which mean, is harsh, but you know, that's across. <laughs> yeah. Have you? Uh, what have you been playing lately, Graham? Um, I've been playing Death Stranding. Mm, me too. <laughs> which um, I, I mean, I'm, I've I've played like nine or ten hours of it at this point, and I think it's amazing. <laughs> like, I'm just having a great time with it, and I don't. Obviously, it came out in console last year, and I played it a little bit then, but I remember all of the discourse around it in the lead-up 
to it being, oh, what is this game? What is this game? Yeah. And then I remember it coming out, and then I didn't see that much about it once it came out. Like it seemed to just it seemed to fizzle out quite quickly. And I'm not sure if that's just my perception or if I just missed it, but I don't understand why there wasn't more celebration of the fact that someone has made a AAA game with that level of production values, but the core verbs of it aren't combat and killing yeah. people. It is, you know, people flippantly describe it as a as a walking simulator, um, but it is a game about hiking. And yeah. and yeah, like that's 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 the main thing of it. That and the crazy ass cutscenes. So to like to to sit. I know, I know you guys have both played it as well. So I want I want monologue for too long. But to set it up, it's a Hideo Kojima game, made by his new studio after he left. Is it Konami? Konami, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is set in. A future America where there has been some sort of event to cause humanity to um, isolate themselves in independent cities under the ground, and you play Sam Porter Bridges, <laughs> um, played by Norman Reedus from off of the telly, uh, and you are a postman, and it's your job to walk between these different locations on the landscape delivering packages for people. Um, your your mum is the president of the United States, uh, although the states are no longer united, and um, your you the, the her her assistant is called Die Hardman, <laughs> not Die Hardman like a superhero, but just Die Hardman, <laughs> like Hardman is his second name. Also, uh, he has a has a as an armored skull face. Yes, <laughs> electric. Yeah robot skull face uh and you're like your kind of like tech guy is is called heart Heartman. no dead yeah. man is well, is guillermo del toro's face but not his voice and not acted by guillermo del toro it's just his face um and Heartman is is it nicholas winding refn the film director that's his face Oh my god! I didn't realize that. Okay. Um, and he's the guy that uh, takes your pee and your poo and turns it into grenades. Yeah. Uh, which I'm just I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dwell on. Uh, and then also you've got a baby in a jar strapped to your chest, who is a yeah. breech baby born from a still mother, uh, who is connected to the other side. And also, when you die, you cause an enormous crater, but wake up in an ocean then through some process involving your own esophagus are reborn. Um, and it's just like, I think I'll stop here, but that, that's the first thing that hooked me was in most action adventure games, like say any Ubisoft game, like any of the Assassin's Creed's, I am deathly bored for the first two or three hours like where it's <laughs> taking me through the tutorial of here's how you stab a man, here's how you jump over a thing here's how you jump off a thing oh you know you know the simulations ended back to the shitty futuristic bit for a bit for some utter crap that i cannot stand like compared to that death stranding is is so mad and has so many ideas that it delivers rapid fire at yeah. you for those first two hours that i was just constantly entertained even with the the cutscenes that definitely go on too long and definitely over explain things it was just one idea after another such that i was gripped the whole way through 
Yeah, I agree. And I think there's, there is so much more that, it, you know, while there's a lot more for it to explain because uh, it has a love of, of naming things, obscure things so that you don't, you're going to have to learn what they are in order to know, Oh, okay. That's that kind of thing. I know what that is. Um, but then also it, it's very anxious to explain absolutely everything in the way that Ubisoft would probably be a little more light touch about, you know, teaching sort of basic principles. You know, this is a game that kind of bludgeons a lot of stuff. Uh, you're, you know, it bludgeons you with a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, like it's just so, so many things, concepts, explanations for things, um, things to do that just, it's just, um, yeah, it's a constant cavalcade of weird but interesting stuff. I think the kind of, I mean, certainly the production value, you know, carries a lot of it. The fact that every little interaction um, is accompanied by some kind of animation, whether it's a UI thing or a, or an actual kind of, you know, game characters kind of doing stuff sort of animation. There's always something to look at and just enjoy for the pure fact that someone sweated quite hard over <laughs> wondering like, what would this look like? And, and how can it look actually pretty fucking cool? Because as a piece of, um, like as a piece of, uh, production design, I just, I'm just constantly just looking in the background at stuff that's being imagined for this straps. Um, I love the straps. <laughs> I love the frames. I love the windows. I love floor plates. I love, I love all the buildings. Jesus Christ. The yeah, buildings just, I was thinking, I was just thinking like, so, the, you know, so you're, so while this is America, I mean, obviously this is going over what, what Tom and Chris talked about way back when, when it came out on PS4, but you know, th this is America, except for it is modeled very closely on Iceland. Um, so it's very, very bleak, lots of rocks exposed, but certain sort of moss kind of growing in between um, uh, wild mountains and rushing streams and that kind of thing. And in this barren landscape are these um, uh, concrete, angular, hyper-modernistic buildings. Um, and they're, they're really great architecture. Like the angles are beautiful. Like they just, I was thinking about some of the architects that sort of brought to mind, but I was thinking of UN studio, which is, um, um, which is a, like a Dutch studio, um, that make these sort of emblematic, very, um, form focused kind of buildings, um, that, that sit in lots of empty or tend to sit in lots of empty space. And that's, that's like these things, these sort of sudden jutting things in this incredibly naturalistic environment i i love that <laughs> so like even when like you graham i was a bit bored during some of the, the descriptions and not really listening i was always just looking there was always something to mm. get interested by this, like yeah i think you're right about like ubisoft would be softer touch most other games would put a lot of that explanation off into a data log that you have to read and the game has that Death Stranding has that as well, but a lot more of it is in the cutscenes, and the the faces are in, are incredible as well. Like, yeah. like your your mum is played by an actress called um, Lindsay Wagner, who I think is most famous for like um, the Bionic Woman or something like that. That's, the seventeen, yeah, I think that's the seventies, right, yeah. 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 And then and then it 
and then just, you know, so she she was most famous then in the seventies, and she's an an old woman now. She's your the mum of Norman Reedus, and but then it introduces your sister, and your sister's face is Lindsay Wagner from the seventies. Like they have obviously got facial tech where they scan people's faces, but then they seem to have scanned this lady's face and either de-aged it or just scanned her face from 50 years ago somehow. And so it one-ups itself immediately like that. And yeah, like the, the product design of all the things that um, the, the main character, Sam, carries is really great. Like I love mm. your, your suit and the boxes on your back and all that sort of stuff. Um, and like the buildings are really important as well because this is a game where you do spend a lot of time in the wilderness. Like you spend like some of the hikes that I've gone on, even in these early stages of the game took me like 90 minutes of like trying to plot a path through a landscape because mm. you can't, you can't easily just set up uh, uh, on the map, set up a path that like then leads you exactly where you need to go. There are maybe like four or five different routes. One of which is going to take you through mule territory, which are like, other postmen, postmen have been postmen. And, and, and are now obsessed with delivering packages so much that they just beat up people with packages so they can oh, that's steal right. them. Yeah, they've got some sort of compulsion, delivering, delivery compulsion. <laughs> yes, just to get the dopamine hit of popping something through a letterbox. Um, and then you've most got, of what you know, they tend to do, like just sorry, like, most of what they tend to do is just sort of set up a camp and uh, and wander around it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then look, there'll be another route that will take you through BT territory, which is the kind of um, ghost oil whales. I don't know what they are yet. They they seem to be invisible ghosts that can float in the air that look like scary soldiers when they materialize. But then the way they attack you is to shoot a beam of black oil at you that causes humanoid figures covered in oil to come out of the ground and grab at you, causing mm. you to spell your packages. And then if you don't <laughs> escape then then a big, I think it's a whale, yeah. comes out of the ground. It's got squid tentacles as well. Oh, yeah, so it's like a Cthulhu whale thing, I guess, yeah. um, that you then have to throw your piss grenades at in order to defeat, um, or you'll get killed and, you know, cause the big crater. So, like, you're kind of making these decisions about where you're going to go. And then there's just the terrain itself. Like, it actually, like, most walking simulators, you just walk like you just hold down w where here you're you're thinking about the balance of the packages on your back because you're constantly stumbling this way or that and having to use the triggers on the controller in order to shift your balance you Mm. can move things around on your pack in order to shift your balance your shoes erode over time and all your items erode over time and so um and as and as you're going through across the train you might come unexpectedly to a cliff and have no way down unless you've got a strand, which is what they call a rope. It's just a rope, <laughs> but they call it a strand. Um, uh, and you can use that to like abseil down the cliff. Um, but it means that the buildings, when you get to them, feel like a relief from being out in the elements. Because that's the other thing. Rain is called time fall <laughs> and ages anything it touches, including damaging all your packages. Yeah. And it's sort of like, it starts to feel like I used to go on a lot of hikes with my dad when I was a kid up Scottish mountains and hills and stuff like that, which has like a lot of it is quite similar to Icelandic landscapes. It's, you know, um, lots of rock, very windswept, um, 
lots of bracken, that sort of stuff. So like, it's reminiscent of those things. And you do think about your footwear, you do think about what's in your pack, you do think about if when it's raining, about all the stuff that's maybe getting trashed because mm. it's raining. So when you get to a building in Death Stranding, it's like, oh, thank God, like a chance to rest, a chance yeah. to repair my stuff. And you have like a private room in those locations that you can go into where Norman Reedus can have a shower, do a poo, garden <laughs> in front of the mirror, um, point you quite aggressively towards his growing collection of army men figurines, which is always on the shelf by his bed. Yeah. I don't fully understand. Play I don't with... know how they're. I don't know how they're transporting between the um the, the places. I can only assume that he must carry them in one of the boxes on his back. <laughs> or something like that. God, I really wish you wouldn't, because like I really hate it when I'm imbalanced. And if it's all full of army figures, Warhammer figures. Like and it is a game of like entirely fetch quests, as far as I can tell. Like everything I've had so far is take this item from here to here, or mm. sometimes go into mule territory and and retrieve something they've stolen and mm. then deliver it somewhere else. Um, but it has enough going on in its simulation of of weather and of terrain and of balance and of the erosion of your items that even traveling just from A to B is a real mission that you mm. sort of have to plan for and think about a little bit. I, I had a really nice, my, most, my, my favorite journey so far was um, up to a wind farm. It's a re really close, you know, it's, it's not very far into the game at all. Um, and by this point, it's taught you a lot of the main points of, of how to do stuff. Um, I just built a bridge over the river that outside the mm -hmm. building where I started it went across the bridge um, and this journey was uphill. It's the first, you know, majorly uphill journey I've had so far. Um, and then it went straight downhill and into a little forest and then back uphill again. And um, that the first uphill ended up going into um, a strong headwind and you could see um, uh, the character like leaning into it. Mm. And I was constantly having to use the trigger, the left trigger, to lean back into the wind in order to to kind of counteract it, and that just added so much to it. You know, it's sort of this count, this this sort of you know, at this up until this point, I've been worried about stumbling on rocks. You know, constantly scanning for things that I might stumble on. Um, but now there's a whole other point. Like I was carrying a heavy stuff because the, the delivery was heavy. And then I got to the top and then there's this hill down this very steep, rocky between trees. And I was tired by this point. And like, really, it's just such a good journey. Just so interesting, so grounded, sort of fully placed in somewhere, you know, that everywhere, everything made sense, geographical, spatial, you know, meaningful sense. Um, like I'm still, still struggling a little bit with the ghosts i don't want them <laughs> i just <laughs> and i think that's the emotion i meant to have obviously but i just i just don't i don't want the distraction i was in, i'm enjoying just walking i don't want enemies at this you know maybe i will later on but i would love just just have a few kind of you know when it starts raining which is when the ghosts come out i just groan oh, not this again <laughs> the thing with the ghosts and with the mules is that, well, I mean, I've dropped the difficulty down to easy rather than normal. Mm. I think there's five difficulties and I'm, not, I'm on the, the, the second easiest one. And it's, um, it is easy. Like, 
even if you can't get away successfully from the ghosts um, and you trigger the kind of boss fight, it's like two grenades in its mouth and it and it's gone. Oh, okay. Like that's almost easier than struggling with them trying to pull you off your feet and off your balance and that sort of stuff. Like I'm almost, almost at the point now where I just deliberately let it happen. So cause because once you defeat the boss, that's it. They're gone completely. Right. Um and that area is therefore cleared from that point on. Um maybe they maybe they come back hours later or something like that. But that's it really means, good to know. No, rather than making your way through across this landscape where they're constantly attacking you until you're out of the zone, you can just quite quickly lean into it, let them take you and have the fight. Um, but yeah, that's what I was, I was going to say, actually. Like, I loved going up that hill as well, but there are enough considerations of navigating the terrain that it, I've sort of had instances where I've created my own little quests because like at one point you get a bike which cause a reverse strike because it's got two wheels at the front and one at the back, you know, which is actually, you know, it looks quite cool. It's quite a nice yeah. bit of product design again. Um, but I, I picked a route through the terrain, was driving my bike up this hill and got to the top and was like, oh, this is a cliff edge. I can't actually take the bike any further. I could have gone back and driven back the way I came and tried to take another route, but that was going to take ages. And so I decided to park my bike there, abseil, and then go the rest of the, the, the distance across the valley on foot. <laughs> but then like two hours later, I was like, I want my bike back. I've got to now do a much longer delivery. I want to do it on the bike rather than doing it on foot. Yeah. And so I set off to go get my bike back at where I left it at the top of the hill. And that was a 90 minute long hike to get back to where that point was. At which point when I got there, it had been because the rain erodes everything. Oh, so it's been eroded. Oh God. Yeah. So it was, hadn't exploded. It was, it was still there exactly where I left it, but it was all rusted and beaten to shit. And then I had to go drive it to somewhere else to repair it. And so like, that was a, a really compelling um, mission I went on, but it grew entirely out of the systems of the hiking rather than it being just like a fetch quest assigned to me by one of the talking heads. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, uh, and then there's a the whole sort of social side. I think, yeah, Tom, you're you're probably you're probably better versed in the, the kind of the greater uh, machinations of the of the social stuff. Yeah, so the game is about linking up these major population centers uh, using a special necklace, uh, which is magic and it floats. Um, <laughs> but once a, like a sector is uh, drawn into the network, then you start seeing player major structures there um, that seem to be like pulled from a, like the entire pool of possible player creations. Not it doesn't pull all of them; it just pulls a select number of them. And um, so you might find a, suddenly find a really convenient bridge, or a really well placed ladder, or a, a just the perfect rope. And when when you discover these things, like you, you're genuinely grateful because it just makes things so much less arduous. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, a system called just the like system, uh, where you could just smash a button on your control pad to just give that player who placed that item loads and loads of likes, which will then level the, their character up when they log in again. Um, and that just becomes a sort of meta game across the course of the entire game by itself. And actually, I was incentivized to actually go back and build roads and build bridges and build kind of like recharge stations that can give your bike its energy back. Um, just because I kept on getting, I'd log in and I'd be like, oh, you've had 2,000 likes. Um, and it's, it's, just a, it's, a, it's, it's just a transparent sort of like attempt to parody Amazon um, as, as the whole fetch quest thing is as well. 
uh, and the fact that you're kind of like a very put upon uh, delivery person who's been given an impossible job. And, and uh, when you get like slightly further into the game, uh, you can pile up boxes on your back that are literally just six feet tall above you that are just wobbling and swaying this way and the other <laughs> in the wind. And uh, it just becomes like a, a ludicrous task. She's like, why did you trust this one man to do all this work? Uh, and you end up feeling quite sorry for Norman readers. Um, that, that contributes to the, the sense that when you do find one of these little man-made shortcuts, um, there's, there's the gratitude. Uh, I, I think I found that because um, the buildings that you place have the same beautiful angular uh, designers, uh, all of the kind of urban aesthetic in the rest of the game. Um, but I found it like slightly spoil the landscape as well. And I'm not sure if this is deliberate or not. Um, but when you kind of first go through an area and it's just, there's not been met, tampered with at all, and there's nothing there. Like it's just absolutely beautiful and uh, it looks gorgeous on PC and it runs really well as well. Um, and like that natural beauty does over time get scarred by the player placements um but at the same time you just need them so i don't know if that's like a deliberate statement of some kind or just it, the way it that feels I've like it's read it. have, yeah mm. it feels like it's sort of part of the messaging and i don't know that i mean the messaging i mean it's kind of it's very kojima sort of cusp of profound <laughs> like <laughs> there's lots of stuff going on and there's lots of stuff to think about and you're never quite sure how much of it's intentional and how much of it is deeply profound how much of it is dumb you know it's exists you know it's in all of that stuff all the time you know at the same time um but like yeah like you know sort of like unpacking that in this instance uh about you know these buildings kind of messing up the environment like this beautiful beautiful landscapes um yes I can see it making a statement about, hey, everybody, like, you know, we're, we're, we're like ruining like the world, but then, you know, in, in doing the things that we do to, to the, to, you know, to do things, but then also like, it's really good that we're all connected and that's a big message of the game. And like, you know, we've got to join together and be connected. And so the only way to do that is to mess up the world. And like, I just have no idea where it's standing. on <laughs> What's that stuff. really saying about anything? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really struck me actually, because, um, uh, Emma's been playing it recently and she's really enjoying it. Uh just for the hiking primarily, which is the best bit. Um but it's a profoundly lonely game in a a way that I've actually really enjoyed. Mm. Uh so and the only human contact you really ever have, they're mostly like either a hologram who has appeared in your apartment, or they're a kind of like hazy uh sort of three D piece of graphics that you you'll encounter. Everyone lives underground and you hardly ever see any real people in it. Mm. Um and you're it's only sort of mode of humanity in this whole world, really. Uh, the landscape's quite cold and unforgiving, and then the architecture's cold and unforgiving. And it's just, there's a sort of like, you feel deeply kind of exposed as Sam. And it, it made me like Sam a lot, actually, because he sort of gruffly gets on with it all the time. Um, and like, he'll moan, if he falls over, he'll sort of moan and pick himself back up, up again. And that, you feel, feel his, Norman Reedus' determination. Um, <laughs> but the overall, yeah, the overall sort of feeling of the game is that I don't didn't feel like I was connecting humanity up. felt like I was just going through this kind of nightmarish hike yeah. <laughs> with this poor man <laughs> who has, who doesn't even know why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, it's just still an effective emotional weight to it. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Sure. Yeah. Um, and like, and it's really interested in showing you his body as well. Like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. it's not like, it, it is definitely funny that you can make him have a shit and, and, and you have to give him showers, but you also, I definitely want to give him showers because whenever I deal with a ghost and get covered in their ghost oil, he gets really dirty and um, I don't, you know, 
his uh, his shoulders are just covered in these welts from the straps on these yeah. heavy pack, you know, on the heavy backpack that you're making wear, you know, and you just you just it you feel the hot water on coursing down his his actually rather attractive body, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's just you know it's that profound and sort of silliness like next to each other all the time and meaninglessness and meaningfulness is a really great game <laughs> it's exactly what you said it was way back when <laughs> tom yeah I don't, it's, it's easy to make fun of the plot and stuff and i do it does frustrate me because it it presents this barrage of incredible imagery just brilliant horror concepts um and then just doesn't land any of it. <laughs> it just, all, just lets it hang out there for you. And it's like, well, it's a raw shark test for you now. Uh, make of it what you will. And I always find that a bit unsatisfying. Um, but you're right, it's absolutely packed full of ideas. And it's, it's a beautiful adventure, really. It's, and there's nothing else like it. I do yeah. wonder how much Sam is meant to be a stand-in for, like, Kojima himself. Like, there is, <laughs> there is, I don't know, like, Kojima came to develop in Brighton a couple of years ago. And when he was here, like spent a lot of time in the record shops and i know that because he has an instagram account and he was mm. posting photos of the records that he bought excitedly in the brighton record shops and he's kojima's big on twitter and he has kids and so there's something about this guy walking around this landscape staying in these um lonely <laughs> private rooms that are almost like hotels collecting rec because you find pop songs as you as you mm. travel around the landscape that you can then make come out of the buildings that you you place um and and with this baby strapped to your front and the the cufflinks around your wrist which is literally handcuffs that tie you to the network that you know can connect you to everyone else although you're so isolated from there's something of that kind of like international business traveler <laughs> to, to Sam of that i wonder if kojima is if you know feels or that he's, he's expressing the sadness and loneliness of being a video game producer <laughs> and he's constantly stressing out his baby uh... <laughs> Maybe maybe the baby is the gamers. Maybe that's uh, <laughs> stressing out all the gamers with uh, with with his need to create. I, I did come to like the baby actually because um, the baby can like your your actions, like you know the likes that you get from uh, other people liking your structures. Occasionally, BB the baby will just like something you're doing, and um, that actually creates a whole personality for this fetus. Um, <laughs> so if, if you pull certain faces in the mirror, BB likes that. Um, if you slide really fast down a hill he likes that um but also he doesn't like being submerged in water so you, there's a kind of personality that comes out uh, around that baby that structure your chest in addition to the sort of weird flashbacks you get when you actually plug him into yourself which oh, is mad, Mac, mads mickelson turns up yeah. good, good old mads yeah <laughs> he's, he's really good in that game actually. so you cry every time you plug the baby into yourself <laughs> like <laughs> like yeah. not, like sam is um sam's a weird character because he's sort of presented as he's very stoic and unemotional in almost all circumstances and he doesn't like being touched by mm. other people That's right. um, and then he experiences emotion only when he plugs the baby into him and immediately starts crying like it's almost the, the cliche dad game discourse that happened around god of war there is an element of that to this i think as well of like stoic gruff man who only has feelings after he has children I'm looking forward to uh, meeting Stoic Gruffman uh, later <laughs> in the game. He even cries in a manly way, though. His, his expression doesn't change at all. He doesn't blink. There's just tears that just start like 
oozing down his cheeks as he doesn't react. <laughs> but yeah, I really, I really love it. I know, look, I've played like ten hours so far, like I said, and maybe it all goes to shit. But I'm going to stick with it. I think. Yeah, me too. I enjoyed me it too. at the end, to be honest. Even the, the nonsense really kicked in. Awesome. Are you uh, playing any games with Stoic Gruffman in them, Tom? Um, well, it's, it's weird to talk about Ghost of Tsushima after talking about Death Stranding. Uh, this is actually a PS4 game. But it's, going on, it's pretty much the last gasp of the console generation, really. Um, and it's also an open world game uh, set in Japan. The Mongols are invading and you're a Stoic Samurai man um, who's going to save the world, or at least Tsushima. Um, and like I'm really enjoying it, and it's really smooth to play. The controls just feel lovely, and it's got great animations for the fights and stuff. Um, but it's kind of encapsulates the way that most typical open world design has gone in the, over the course of this generation, and how like the expectations for an open world game with a big budget mean that you just have to have certain mechanics in. <laughs> um, and there's apart from perhaps Legends of Zelda, and apart from um, apart from Death Stranding, very yeah. few games have actually deviated at all from the formula that pretty much Ubisoft have come up with. Um, and that's kind of a, even though I enjoy the game, it's a source of disappointment for me because it's something I'd like to see experimented more in the next generation with, you know, the next generation of hardware coming in, um, where hopefully it'll be easier to like stream in uh, these worlds via the sort of SSDs we'll be running these games on. Um, and to get away from the kind of capture points or reveal chunk of map or and just like skill points that unlock um, moves that you should have already have at the start of the game as a samurai, <laughs> like the ability to kick someone <laughs> is an <it laughs> unlockable skill. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure a samurai would know how to kick someone. Um, uh, and it, it's just endless, endless collectibles, particularly of plants and bushes. So it's all, it's, I know it's kind of like a sort of snackable thing and it sort of lets you kind of swipe at a bush to pick it up as you're all sort of traveling between two is it is points. it one of the ones where you get to continue moving as you as yes you thank god yeah. yeah uh yeah that's a lesson that i think a lot of games like horizon zero dawn have learned it's like don't stop the player if they need to pick up a plant yeah. um yes yeah, so it, it makes it it's kind of a weird piece of design because it makes a sort of crunching sound as if you've eaten it um <laughs> it goes, when you pick up a, a flower <laughs> and but there's something very satisfying about that even though it's stupid um i just think that yeah it's it's, it's just I'm kind of sick of the same skill trees <laughs> and the same combat systems and the same uh, like absolutely gorgeous landscapes, but um, that are basically revolve around nodes of interest uh, yeah. that you have to discover, and then you do some quite repetitive mission design um, over and over again. And it really does feel like that's Ubisoft's legacy <laughs> in terms of open world game design that has sort of been picked up by um, studios that just want to sort of make their their version of that game. It's also been thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly criticised as well. You know, for a very long time, mm. the, Ubi, the Ubisoft open world design has been widely castigated, <laughs> and it's something that even Ubisoft is kind of moving away from to a degree. You know, like reducing the amount of towers you're going up, like putting in Far Cry Five, um, making you. Cr- uh, climb a tower to be told at the top that you won't have to to climb any more towers <laughs> <laughs> why did you make me do the first one yeah i know you know this is bad. you bastard <laughs> uh, but i think uh, it's, it's gorgeous though and i love i, I just love the, the world and um the badass samurai clothes you get to wear and um the awesome sword you get to upgrade um I saw, I saw a slightly chilling thing uh, that, that um, Tom Francis uh, wrote on a, a thing that we all we all um, contribute to. He um, 
he said that you have to unlock stealth. So not um, only can you not, not <laughs> kick until you're taught it. You can't um, crouch in long grass either. That's, that's a high-level skill. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it, the, the stealth stuff is story-locked, which is another thing that really irritates me when um, very just obvious abilities is sort of locked to a story beat. Um, yeah. It's not too far in. So you, you, you're soon able to just sort of crouch in long grass and assassinate people. Um, and it's actually like... I really like the stealth in it because it's really light touch and the controls are really good. They just feel really smooth. And the game's really good at interpreting what you want to do um, at a good distance, by which I mean uh, the one of the great frustrations for me about the, you know, so many games are just like third person, you're crouching behind a person, very slowly gaining on them as you crouch walking behind them. And then you misjudge the execution cue because you needed to be slightly closer to them than you thought you did. And then you turn into a big fight. Um, whereas like the more generously a game interprets that, button press mm. the more i like it because mm. you know what i'm trying to do here <laughs> it's not a mystery um the outcome should be guaranteed and uh, i feel like Sushima has lots of kind of light touch control stuff that actually works quite well for that yeah um, but yeah i think the easiest thing for a critic to say is to be like oh i played this with loads before so i want it to be different um but when it comes to open world stuff i really do <laughs> i think death stranding really shows the value the kind of emotional weight you could bring to an open world without that typical structure um, and actually the reason why Death Stranding to be felt like a real journey was because it lacked a lot of the checkpointy stuff like you are moving between checkpoints of course but you're well, moved... the checkpoints are meaningful to you beyond simply being like an arbitrary checkpoint that the game has decided you're not sort of ticking it off um, yeah. you know, I, like, I actually want to get to that place to see the terrain into Death Stranding mm. and I actually want to see more of America such as it is that they've imagined it um, Whereas uh, it feels like for a game like Tsushima, you're playing in this beautiful backdrop. It's absolutely gorgeous, but the train feels like kind of meaningless. Really, it's just like set dressing in a way that Death Stranding, like if it, the journey, is really meaningful. And I've really felt the difference between watching Emma play Death Stranding and actually playing Tsushima as well. So, like, I'd say like it's a it's a perfectly good seven out of ten open world game with a nice combat system. And if you like samurai stuff, then it's it's worth getting. Um, but I yeah, I'm looking forward to more innovative open world structures. <laughs> Yeah, I think Breath of the Wild had that same right. journey feel to it as yeah, well. Definitely. You know, where the the world list existed outside of your journey through it, which which I think definitely feels that that's the Ubi thing. Like it feels like it's a it's a world that has been entirely designed to ensure that you are have a snackable piece of content. You know, every you know four point eight seconds. You know that you might be walking in any given direction. Um, and I, I, the Tsushima, like this is a, this one has restrained itself from the UB design in the sense that it doesn't have icons all over the place. Is that right? Well, it does on the map, basically. So you, <laughs> okay. So um, it doesn't sort of have. It sometimes does actually have like floating icons when you're near an objective, um, but it has really elegant kind of ways of guiding you through the world without using HUD as a display. Um, so uh, if once you set a, an objective, uh, you sort of like swipe upwards on the touch sensitive pad on the PS4 and a, a magical gust of wind and uh, a kind of like a flurry of blossom gusts towards the objective that you're trying to reach. Uh, and that's that's absolutely lovely. Like I, I love that every single time I do it. Um, plumes of steam or smoke on the horizon are just big kind of like go here markers where if it's like big black smoke you'll know it's probably an, an enemy base if it's white it might be like uh, a peaceful shrine you could pray at or uh or something else 
And um, if you see a yellow bird, always follow it because it will lead you to a treat. <laughs> Magic yellow birds, they fly around around you and then you sort of chase them um, up to like shrines, foxes as well, follow foxes. So it's, it's got like these, these really nice um, thematic in-world ways of guiding you between objectives. But the fundamental structure of it is still very much clear this encampment or now you've revealed the map around it. Um, and the, yeah, that's still a little bit, it feels a bit old fashioned to me, even though it's like these games haven't been around for a huge, huge amount of time. I hope we do start seeing games inspired by Breath of the Wild. Like that's felt like such a breath of fresh air, even though it had terrors in it and stuff like that. In a way, like its own version of them. Mm. Um, that I hope, you know, stuff like Ghost of Tsushima would have been started pre-production at the very least would have been finished. I would have thought by the time Breath of the Wild came out. Uh, and so hopefully, in like two years' time, we start to see games which are following in the wake of Breath yeah. of the Wild. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, you mentioned the kind of, or maybe the next generation with kind of better streaming and that kind of thing. I, you know, uh, Breath of the Wild works on a Nintendo Wii uh, U, Wii U, so uh, it's not a streaming issue. Hmm. <laughs> Good point. It's definitely all design. Well, <laughs> so, I mean, we kind of credit Ubisoft with creating this stuff, but like, if you look at Far Cry Two, for example, which was the progenitor for yeah, for a lot of that kind of design. Like Far Cry 2 is a much more interesting journey across that world, you know, between the the malaria that causes you to collapse every six minutes to your guns that break all the time, the fire that spreads dynamically across it, um, the constant respawning of guards that make any journey you want to go on quite difficult. Um, you know, like your truck breaking down because you're off-roading it and, it, you know, the engine pops and you have to stop in the middle of nowhere and try and fix it like it had all these systems at play that made the place feel alive and not like something just designed purely to be consumed by the player it's yeah that's really interesting like did far cry 2 kind of predates the great flare-up of popularity of the survival genre where punishing mechanics have like become integral to games like daisy and things like that and become sensation like a sensation uh, yeah, but, definitely. It was way before it. Yeah. Right. So it feels like Far Cry is actually experimenting with these deliberately punishing mechanics before it has become mega popular. Yeah. Um, and I remember people like that, those were people's biggest complaints about Far Cry 2 uh, was that it was mean to you all the time. <laughs> and you couldn't just go walk to the place because, as Graham says, like you're always getting accosted by uh, bandits or you, your shit just keeps breaking. Yeah. I think like, and yeah, and I think it's the, that, I think it's just, it seems like it's the systemic stuff which, you know, like, you know, the things we've been praising Dark, uh, uh, Death Stranding for has been the systems, you know, the fact that it has a weather system and that, that it has this finely designed walking simulation going on, like, you know, and the fact that it can play around with this stuff and create these emergent situations out of terrain and weather and character appearing and, and you know, um, uh Breath of the Wild is famously systemic, you know, mm. that is its physics system and and all that kind of thing. It feels like Tsushima, like I mean, you know, maybe you, you'd be better place to answer it, really. But it sounds like Tsushima doesn't really have systems outside of the combat system, which is a, this self-contained, very discrete. Now you're in combat mode, and you're going to be having a fight in this pre-ordained situation where we can design it so that it creates the optimal situation for our focus tests audiences and we don't we give leave a minimum amount to chance yeah is that like the kind of 
yes. how things work in this. So nothing unexpected will ever happen in that game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there'll be no kind of confluence of different systems that create a magical moment or even just like a slapstick moment of, uh, you know, what the hell just happened? It's just, it, you're right, it's, everything's passed out into its section. Like, yeah, here, here's the combat bit. Um, and here's the, you can try to do stealth if you want to. Um, and there's a, there's a feature I really like where you could basically um, break stealth to challenge the entire camp <laughs> by yourself, which is a lot to like Yojimbo and Kurosawa films, uh, where there's a kind of like a quick draw mini game where you could just instantly kill three of them and look like a, a badass and then um, uh, throw bombs at them <laughs> very, very cheaply as you run away, which is how I've done many of the outposts in that game. Uh, but yeah, it, that's just about like as much fun as I've had with it, really, in terms of actually creating ridiculous situations, uh, which I enjoy most about open worlds. Um, and yeah, that's what I mean when I said it was smooth. Because like while it won't surprise me, there's no jank to it. Like everything is like perfectly modeled just to work, uh, and the animations just they never mess up. And just the feeling of like running fast and climbing on your horse quickly and summoning the, your horse from nowhere all just feels lovely. Sucker Punch has done a really good job of just getting the game feel nice for that. Um, but yes, I I think like especially like part of piece game RPS, we've always loved sandboxes. And uh, sandbox requires things to go wrong sometimes. Like I'd kind of sooner play Mountain Blade, <laughs> and just have very strange things happen with like alliances and um, armies clashing. I was just I remembered a um, I went to a preview of Far Cry Two um, in Montreal um, way back I don't know two thousand seven or something, and um, in one of my first and of uh, the thousands of eye rolls from developers I've had since because <laughs> I was really interested in you know like this was an early-ish um, open world game and it fascinated me to think that there were these um, outposts of enemy soldiers like doing their thing and you could see them from quite a long way off through your um, binoculars or not monocular I think it was um, you could, patrolling and, and whatever and I asked Clint Hawking so so like will they just follow you around like if you alert them will they just come after you and just hunt you down like you know how long how persistent are these things and like <laughs> i got this real sense like of course they're not <laughs> i can't tell you i can't say <laughs> no they're not persistent at all <laughs> you know, right, right, right. they just spawn and they just disappear and like you know there's nothing magical about them at all um but at the same time it is ridiculous for you to think that they have this like this, this 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 kind of existence in life. But like that is definitely what I want, and I can I totally appreciate that that is an incredibly difficult thing to make in a game. That this uh, you know this kind of persistent open environment where anything could fucking happen. I think but it's like, like God, that's the dream, isn't it? <laughs> I think it would have been like a crazy question at the time, though, because like Far, like Far Cry Two came out two thousand and eight, but yeah. the year before, when, when it's when was Stalker? Was well, that two thousand six? Yeah, well, that's what, what I was about to say. Stalker was two thousand seven. It was the year before, no, right. and they've been talking about that for like five years at that point, and its mm. big selling selling point was I think I think they called it a life. Which was, right, yeah, was, yeah. was its AI for the other stalkers in the zone and all the creatures in the zone. And the, the whole thing was, oh, you could come over a hill and some stalkers could be in the midst of a battle with a bunch of mutants or whatever, or raiding a camp or something like that, fighting between these different factions. 
and all that stuff would continue to be simulated even when you weren't around to see it so that you could stumble across it and like to a certain extent <laughs> that turned out to be nonsense or just not possible <laughs> within the the technical limitations they had at that time um but it did do more of that stuff i feel like than far cry 2 did like it was simulating a certain amount of these these creatures as an ecosystem that existed separately from you um with some sense of an economy of like items flowing between these camps and stuff like that so like it's not i don't think it was unreasonable to ask clint hawking if his game did anything like that yeah Uh, but i can also see that sort of um like i can understand given the amount of criticism that um that stalker got for its sheer bugginess and the fact that the jank made lots of game stopping you know immersion sort of tearing out um moments uh that kind of persisted like which which still exist as part of that game's legend now um i can totally see why ubisoft of 2007 as it was basically making up all the rules that have defined the um the open world game ever since would be going nap not doing any of that I mean, it's a miracle they they released a game where you do have malaria and you have to take pills all the time. Like the amount of stuff that is in that game that is completely unlike anything that they did afterwards is remarkable. Anyway, it's also yeah. so disconnected from the first game, like totally in everything. Like the, the first game is just to kind of knock about. Again, it was notable for its open uh, open zones and stuff, but that was a kind of, sort of dumb action movie, wasn't it? And then it, you suddenly in this gritty, <laughs> gritty situation where everyone's dying. <laughs> and, uh, like gang warfare on the streets. Good I've game. read, yeah, I've read a bunch of making of stuff for Far Cry Two, and they and it started with the landscape. Like they were trying to find what is a, mm. a beautiful kind of exotic landscape that we could visit, um, you know, that would live up to the first game, but which is different. And they settled on the idea of, uh, you know, I don't know where in Africa it's set, but somewhere on the African continent. And then every point after that seemed to be like. Oh no, <laughs> we can't, <laughs> we can't make a frivolous game set in this place about the subject matter. Yeah, and right. The rest of the time, trying to like earn the fact that they were setting a game there by trying to seriously convey issues around, around that part of the world. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure that was a wise move commercially, but it's a mm. heck of an interesting thing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we do questions from questions? Yeah, let's do that. Sure. Uh, I've got a question here from Sebastian. Sebastian says, uh, I hate losing in RPGs. You know, the infinite mountains of crap. I find that I never longer enjoy the fun that it's supposed to create of selling and crafting, which are actively harmful to the fantasy I'm trying to live out in most RPGs. That of the killer, the romancer, the moral dilemma solver. It sounds like being a killer or romancer is kind of creating moral dilemmas. By the way, this is an interjection by me, Alex. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like these are mutually uh, exclusive uh, things to be. Anyway, Geralt of Rivia doesn't haggle for meteorite or runestones in the books, so why am I doing it in the game? I see lots of mods that remove item weight, which leans into the gaminess and means at least you're not bogged down by deciding exactly which crap to carry. Myself, I prefer the opposite solution where I only pick up something if I start using it right away and drop whatever it's replacing on the ground. So I loved the long dark and I'm repelled 
by Diablo 3. What do you think? Are there games that you found especially egregious or praiseworthy in their loot-o-narrative assonance? That's very good. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> very clever. We probably, that, that's a whole bottle of whiskey each in the, uh, the drinking game, I think. <laughs> Well, I mean, we've already talked about my answer, which is Death Stranding, uh, which is, you know, it's a game about packages and you find those packages sometimes by looting camps or looting other people. Um, But the thing I like about it is that the things that you're carrying have meaning within the systems of the game. They're not just an item on your inventory thing with a, a binary encumbered number that you can't go over like the, like you get in say the Elder Scrolls games you actually have to think about your pack and how you balance it on your shoulders and that sort of stuff and I, that's the sort of thing I'm always looking for from looting and inventory systems things that you know it's, the items aren't just stats they have some greater meaning within the world and I wanted to like point people at an article actually that I think is relevant to this that we ran and I guess it's terrible to promote my website basically but <laughs> on, on rock paper shotgun back in 2014 uh and a writer called rob sherman who's an interactive fiction author wrote an article called i am over encumbered why game inventories matter which is seven thousand words long <laughs> um <laughs> back when we used to publish more experimental stuff and it's um, kind of intercut with stories of his own hiking expeditions and the stuff that he would carry and the, the relevance of that. But um, it's it's beautifully written prose and he just makes a very strong case for why loot and inventories in video games are rubbish and how they could be much better. And specifically, uh, he calls out a novel called The Things They Carried, written by Tim O'Brien, Um, who himself was a Vietnam veteran, and the novel focuses on a combat troop during the war and afterwards, but it tells the story via the items they carried. Um, Like weaponry is mentioned um, and that sort of stuff, but also just the kind of miscellaneous things that soldiers carry, you know, when they're when they miss home, when they miss people from home, when they're superstitious, when they're afraid, uh, and the great significance that those items can take on. And I've always, you know, I'm always sad that in games, you go on these great adventures, you stuff your boots with every item you find in in bins and drawers across the entire landscape, and it's just mostly meaningless most of the time. <laughs> We'll stick um we'll stick the article in the uh, show notes. But I I think I missed this, so I'm going to read that with delight after this. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna push back gently on being repelled by Diablo 3's loot. I mean, it's definitely critiquable the fact that you're picking up just billions and billions of weapons that that are meant to like be used. You know, they're all usable and yet worthless because they're not got the numbers that you want like you know and the same for destiny and things like that i think the i think there's a difference in the idea of the narratively kind of the narrative work that loot is doing and the mechanical work that are kind of like a loot shooter or like a, an action rpg kind of you know how they work with loot like they're very different things and you know i think i think it's definitely odd that I'm picking up hundreds and hundreds of 
items of armor in um, Destiny and trashing them uh, magically and getting kind of small amounts of money for it, um, you know, out in the field. But uh, yeah, like it's different, and I, it's very important to the game's economy that it exists. You know, the, there's this stuff that I'm churning through and making rolls on to see whether I can get improved stats on things. I think, uh, like, new games, games like Diablo, uh, new systems do kind of activate a part of the lizard brain that likes collecting mm. things. Yeah. Irrespective of whether, like, it makes any sense that you'd be able to hold that amount of stuff on your person. Um, but also, I think the reason I find over encumbrance mechanics uh, annoying is because they are as simple as, like, oh, you have, you have to walk at one mile an hour now instead of running at eight miles an hour. Um, and at least uh, Death Stranding turns that into a game because actually balancing and you know, moving through yeah. the environment is, is deeply affected by how you actually pack the stuff onto your back and onto your sides and onto the, the frame that you're wearing. Um, but th that speed reduction is just so, so annoying. <laughs> I think if, if over-encompass is more interesting, then I, like there's some risk reward to it, perhaps. Perhaps I'd be more interested, but I just find it to be an irritation in most RPGs. Um, if I could throw five out of my hands, I could probably carry more than three swords. <laughs> <laughs> um I thought of another example of a game that does this really well, actually, is Neo Scavenger. Did either oh, yeah. of you play that? Yeah, that's no. Neo Scavenger is a roguelike um, with permadeath that takes place in a kind of post-apocalyptic world, but the world isn't wholly procedurally generated. It's like a, it's like a roguelike set upon a kind of Fallout-like RPG um, where you're making your way across the landscape um, and there are cities and there are quests and there are factions that you then stumble across and then you die and it's right back to the beginning. But it really works. And the, like, the starting point of that game is you kind of wake up from cryogenic freeze and the only thing you're wearing is like a medical gown and that's it. And there is a wolfman clawing at the door outside the room you've just woken up in and you are just like you, you choose skills at the start but you're just a, a pretty regular person and the only things you can carry at the beginning are literally what you can carry in your hands because you don't have any pockets on your medical gown and you don't have a mm. bag or anything like that and so like you can climb out the window to escape the 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 wolfman at the door and go explore this world and like the most exciting thing you find at first is a plastic bag because a plastic bag, you can put other things in it. And so suddenly when you find a bottle of water or something like that, you can put it in your plastic bag. If you find some tin of beans, you can put it in your plastic bag. And that's great because that's that food's going to see you through the night. Um, although you're probably going to die hypothermia in the back of some car because you're still just wearing a medical gown. Um, but then you'll be walking down a road and your plastic bag will rip, <laughs> spilling your cans and your water bottle and all the other junk you've collected all over the roadside. And then you're just like, oh, fuck, like I might literally die in the next 24 hours because I can't <laughs> carry anything. You have to choose which two items you're going to take with you from from what you've just spelled all over the ground. And like, so the, the, if you manage to find a rucksack, then it's like Christmas morning. Like it's the greatest thing in the world. Like you've just become king of the universe because now you've got, <laughs> you can carry things on your back and it's more sturdy. It's not going to rip like a plastic bag does. So it's a game where everything becomes really valuable. And the reason I mentioned the Wolfman is because you can choose like a, a fighting skill at the start. What you can do with that is rather than climbing out of the window to escape, 
You can take a bit of the broken glass from the window, open the door on the wolfman, and just fuck him up <laughs> with a bit of broken glass. Uh, like beat him to death with your bare hands, and then use the broken glass to skin him and wear his fur as a coat, which is going to keep you warm if you manage to win that fight. But you also like the the text, the flavor text that comes up says that you defeat him with such an amazing. Um, the display of fighting prowess that you then go into another room in the facility, find the security camera footage of your fight and take the VHS tape of it so that you have like footage of your victory. And so like you could then go out into the wilderness from the beginning of the game wearing this wolfman's fur coat holding a VHS tape. <laughs> and, and yeah, this is a game where items really matter. I remember um, uh, being really screwed in that game because I, I could only find two left shoes, um, and you can't you can't choose to wear a left shoe on your right foot. It's just going to slowly fuck you up <laughs> for the, the next few days, and that'd be like a major dilemma in the game. It's really really clever. Yeah, everything in that game is going to slowly fuck you up. Because, yeah, you can wear that shoe on the wrong foot, but you're going to get blisters. They're going to get infected, and you're going to die. And the yeah. bottle of water you found anyway, if you can't boil it, you're going to drink it, and you're going to get infected, and you're going to die. You're going to go into the forest, and you're going to eat some mushrooms, but you're going to eat the wrong mushrooms. You're going to vomit yourself to death in the middle of the night. Like just everything in that game is going to kill you. It's a fun time. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> ah, thank you, Sebastian, for that question. Um, uh, Trav, Trav Sis says, uh, I bought Satisfactory after Alex's recommendation. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a fine game, very po- post-Subnautica. But I kind of feel like I'm playing it left-handed. The belts are finicky, building stuff neatly is tricky, reorganizing things is arduous. In short, the incredible UI with blueprints, drones, undo, redo, etc. of Factorio preemptively tainted Satisfactory for me. My question what game do you think you'd have enjoyed more had you not played a different game before it? I can't, yeah. I think, I, I think that, yeah, I I have wondered how much I'd like um, Satisfactory if I'd properly got into um, Factorio beforehand. Um, but there's something, like when I have tried to play Factorio, there's a sort of, there's a clinic, like a, um, a non-embodied aspect to it which makes it much more of a cognitive much more of a um isolated sort of experience and which i kind of felt a bit cold and just couldn't get into although i appreciate there's almost you know like everyone says it's an amazing game there satisfactory also has factories but it's from first person and and i i I can totally you know things are trickier thing to do in this game um, but because it's physicalized in front of me, um, I just found, despite some of the finickiness of placing stuff and the way things link to each other, the fact that I'm in that world, that finickiness makes sense. And I kind of just accept it's part of the game. But I totally see what um, Travis says, because, um, yeah, I can, I can, I have wondered whether Factorio would ruin it. I don't have a... A fantastically interesting answer to this question, but I do look wonder a lot of the times with, say, a game like um, Mirror's Edge Catalyst, which is the sequel to Mirror's Edge, and it was decent enough, I think, but 
I didn't like it nearly as much as the first game. Like it's set in a, a kind of more open environment um, with a similar art style and it's, you know, clean lines and pretty colors and it's got all the free running movements as the first game did. Um, but it just felt really flat to me compared to the original. Like I just don't feel like it did any one of those things as well as the first one did. But if it had done those things, first without me having played the first game like the novelty of it would have been so much more impressive than it was because the novelty wasn't there because i'd already played the first one you know free running mechanics didn't do anything for me as just exciting in their own right um yeah yeah i think having an open world as opposed to like curated levels really did something to that game um because of the part of the first game is that it's kind of like sections of that game are just like a roller coaster basically you're sort of sliding down things and jumping over things and you're sort of going as i've always said about this game you sort of parkour running through the, the color wheel and you'll suddenly like come out of a green bit out the sewers into this beautiful sunlight bit and that's sort of mm. like very curated for you i think that journey um was really lacking in the second one this idea of kind of like just free running organically around an open city that mostly looks kind of the same i think something just really went out of the magic of the game just based on that one decision yeah, it's weird because I, I so often prefer open world games, but I, I think you're absolutely right that it was the wrong choice for that game. And our final question for this episode uh, is from Chris from New Zealand. Uh, he writes, um, your mention of Half-Life Alex Final Hours, uh, which we talked about last week, um, uh, had me again thinking about Valve's unreleased F-Stop game. It was first publicly mentioned in Portal 2, The Final Hours, and it was hoped to be the big unexpected idea that Valve needed for a sequel to Portal. Eventually, they scrapped F-Stop mechanic when they realized that they were making a Portal game without portals, but kept details of the mechanic secret so that it could potentially be implemented in a future Valve product. I've often wondered about F-Stop ever since reading about it in 2011, trying to imagine what the mysterious mechanic was, or wondering if F-Stop had already been incorporated into another, broad, another Valve product. I tried a quick Google search for the term, and it turns out the gameplay footage was revealed for the first time late last year. A company called Lunchhouse Software supposedly has the source code for the demo and has Valve's permission to release a video series to document the game. No idea how this happened to occur, but I'm ha just happy that my fine can mind can finally rest. What are your thoughts on the demo? Is there a good game here to be made? Perhaps with Valve's renewed interest in game development, we may still see it in a future product. Warm regards, Chris. Um, we'll stick um, uh, a video, uh, a link to the video um, in the show notes. But essentially, F-Stop is one of them games where you have a camera uh, and you can take pictures of stuff in the environment and then you can kind of create those things elsewhere in the environment um, using perspective tricks to make them larger and softer and um, larger and softer, <laughs> larger and smaller. Uh, and in order to make puzzles, um, uh, and there's like one of the examples is a bunch of crates because you've got to have crates, um, taking pictures of all these crates and there are some balloons on some of them. And, you know, the, the player creates a range of sized crates going from small to large, soft to large, uh, <laughs> and then attaches balloons, which are also in the scene, uh, to one of the boxes, uh, one of the crates and it floats up into the sky. So, um, yes, exposure. Um, I was 
underwhelmed thoroughly by exposure. And <laughs> Valve were completely right not to release it. That's my thoughts. <laughs> I, I think it's just um, it reminds me so much of Gary's mod, but if you like, I don't. I'm not interested in a puzzle game based on this. I'm interested in the sandbox that Gary's mod is that lets me actually just plant balloons anywhere and put big boxes in and right, put a yeah. head head crab on a somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. um physics sandboxes yeah. <laughs> right and, and that, like obviously guys one is just spawned been such an amazing kind of um canvas for for people over the years whereas uh, yeah the, 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 the idea of a kind of very limited equivalent of that type of like item placement tech doesn't fill me with joy but i appreciate this is from from when this was like because i remember when you know this is you know around 2011 presumably this was being made in you know 2009 10 mm. something like that um back i remember being very excited by games that allow you to put spawn things into the world you know to have this sort of element of creativity within a game world you know that was sort of this amazing new thing that games could do like i was amazed by um little big planet which you know oh, yeah. physics physics based world in which you could just place stuff down and it kind of acted physically you know accurately and behaved you know behaved in the ways you'd expect and you could make game you know situations out of them and that was that was thoroughly exciting and i think that i would have a very different attitude towards exposure now now i can see huge limitations in 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 a game like that like for this one fundamentally the camera is acting like an inventory <laughs> which we yeah. just talked about like you're taking a picture of something which is like putting it in your pocket and then you take it back out again and the pit but you know just to explain when you take a picture of something in this game it disappears the thing that you took disappears and you take a picture of not the scene but the object that you're pointing at like as a sort of on its own as this singular entity so it's very abstracted um there have been i did see a video that did the social media rounds a month ago or so about taking pictures where you oh god i can't quite remember exactly how it worked but like it was much more organic you're sort of taking slices out of stuff almost by taking pictures out of them and then you were able to i can't remember exactly what was going on in there do you, do you think, remember it? I, th I saw the same video i think you you could take photos of almost like an entire room and then put the whole room into a different area and it would it wouldn't wasn't just the objects within that room but it would sort of deform the walls so that you could create new architecture in order to it wasn't non-euclidean but you were kind of like creating these kind of escher like spaces almost in order to yeah. give yourself cool. paths but um, the one. but it, i find almost all first person puzzle games quite boring now <laughs> like and I, I loved portal and i liked um antichamber which was around about that same time right. um but there's so many of them like superliminal was one that came out last year it was originally yeah. called museum of simulation technology and it's very similar in that you are doing perf perspective tricks in order to change the size of objects in order to solve puzzles but always the puzzles just break down to trying to get from point A to point B, just trying to get to an exit door. And, and get then, like, the thing I, from here to there. Yeah, and I play a lot of, like, you know, Alan Hazelden or Sarkobon games, 2D games that have that similar idea to them. And I find those really compelling, like the puzzles of them tickle my brain and really challenge me, but converted to a 3D space where there's 
I think partly it's because it's not on a grid. <laughs> I, I feel like the kind of like physicsy wibbliness of the edges of those kinds mm. of puzzles um, dilutes their potential a lot of the time. There's and a looseness that things. means it's less sort of positive. You know, you just don't know. Is this a solution? Yeah, it's part, partly that. And then partly, I think, yeah, they can't have quite the same logical difficulty that maybe you could do from a top-down 2D thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I definitely, feel, I definitely find, um, you know, just the uh, the first personness introduces an element of dealing with spatial stuff that I kind of like I, I played manifold garden and love the way it looks and I think mm. the puzzle design is actually really good in it you know but I've constantly am distracted by the fact that I'm feeling ang- anxious because I think I might be lost and I don't know how to get mm. back to where I was and that dis- detracts from the purity of the puzzle making I do feel like you know Portal and Portal 2 are both incredible games. And I do feel like Valve trapped a generation of indie game developers in chasing this impossible dream of making something Portal-like because I don't feel like there's as much potential in that genre as Valve suggested. Like, I think they, they did it. They did that then. Don't, don't try and follow in their footsteps. Yeah. Yeah, I think I prefer first-person puzzle games that almost follow Myst instead, <laughs> where they're kind of adventure games, or like stuff like Tacoma, which isn't really a puzzle game per se, but um, it is a kind of interactive drama that you experience as though it was kind of portal-like puzzle game, rewinding, forward-winding these performances through these different kind of space capsules. It's really nice. Um, the Talos Principle as well. You're right. Um, that's another good example where, actually, to be honest, it could be a 2D game. It could just be a series of static screens where you solve the puzzles. Um, but there's something to discovering the kind of the lore of the game and the kind of updating your um, data pad with uh, philosophical discussions about the nature of uh, sentience. But yes, I, I do broadly agree with Graham, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I think I think the telling one for me is uh, the witness, which yeah, right. I kind of you know like it's a it's a stern puzzle game, and the puzzles are have nothing to do with well no they suppose they do have to do with with first person, but in the best ways the game the actual puzzle the pure puzzle game itself is um, resolutely kind of board based you know (laughs) abstract mega abstract things but then yeah like the 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 first person stuff that it mixes into these puzzles is where like a lot of the magic lies and uses the very best of first person so actually i would add probably um uh, the witness to the the portal list the parts where you're kind of like tracing the environment or sort of creating patterns that invert the environment in front of you are actually really really awesome i just i wish there was more of that in the game yeah 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 yeah, I, I, I agree the witness that stuff kind of justifies that being a first-person game for me. But like as well as the anxiety that you talk about of being lost, I also feel loneliness a lot of the time in these games. Mm-hmm. And the witness especially um, made me feel that way in a way that I just wouldn't if it was a, a 2D game. Like if I'm not embodied or personified in the space, I don't feel lonely. But as soon as it's a first-person thing, but there's no other people around, then I... I have a weird quiet to them that I find mm. I can only take so much of, particularly yeah. if you're getting stuck on a puzzle. Um, <laughs> I will eventually just close it down in order to go find something noisy to do. Yeah, that, I think that's really fair. I think there's something to say also about the kind of like the the, the place that puzzle games 
um, sit in in my kind of life and world. Like a lot of them are in a little window, uh, you know, on my desktop, you know, while I'm doing something else. I might sort of, oh, let's have a little go on that. Or they're on my phone and quick to bring up. Let's do a level and sort of sweat over it for a while and, and then put it down. They're not, they, they don't, I don't have the need for them to be immersive uh to to kind of to take all of my attention well they do take all of my attention but not all of my kind of sense of place and and being yeah definitely i wonder how many of these games could be sold by giving you a little pet fox (laughs) (laughs) i imagine i just the witness of the little pet fox following you around (laughs) i would see if like that's like a pet fox sounds great. I think actually, like I talk about loneliness. I think a lot of these games try and solve that feeling of loneliness by how doing the portal thing of having a, a wacky robot sidekick that's constantly chirping and bantering away next to you. And I hate that even more. <laughs> but, <laughs> so yeah, if it was just a fox, but he didn't talk or anything, if he didn't have like a gruff New York accent, like a <laughs> dog out of Skyrim, then yeah, that's that would be good. <laughs> well that was uh, all the questions that we have time for and it is that means it is also the end of the the, the show the the program the pod the thing that we've been doing you can hang out with us and our community on our discord channel um and if you have a question for a future episode you can send it to questions at creatingprobar.com uh creightoncrowbar.com of course is our website and it's also where you'll find a link to our discord channel um, or you can tweet questions uh, or anything else to us at Creighton Crowbar. Um, you can also listen to this pod perhaps you already are and all of our other pods on youtube as well as other places where pods are usually distributed um, uh, we are at youtube.com uh, Creighton Crowbar over there um, Creighton Crowbar is c- kindly funded by our Patreon backers if you'd like to know more about supporting our podcast and its spin-offs visit patreon.com slash Creighton Crowbar uh, it only remains for me to say I've been Alex Wiltshire and uh, I can be found on Twitter at Rotational Graham I, I have I have been Graham. I shall continue to be Graham, and you can find me on Twitter at Gonas G O N N A S. And I'm Tom Senior, and I'm bad at Twitter, so I won't give away my name. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for Thanks listening. For listening. Bye. Bye.